Welcome to Tiada FM. We are still in Chengdu. In this episode, we continue to talk with He Wei about his writing class in Sichuan University, his daughter's Chinese class, and his observation on nonfiction writing. 大家好，我是何伟。Hi,、uh, my name is Gu Yu. I'm a big fan of Peter Hasler. I used to work for the Foreign Media in Beijing. Okay, let's start with He Wei's teaching job in Sichuan University. As a teacher in Sichuan University, how do you feel about your teaching? 对，现在我我是去年来的，我在川的不是教这个非虚构的，还有一课是这个写作，写作，所以我是学生。比如说有一些是新闻系啊，也有一些英语系的，也有一些是其他的。对。So now you're back in the teaching business again. I'm wondering what is the biggest difference between your students back in Fulin and students in Sichuan University. I guess there must be really different kind of people. 啊，区别挺大的，最大的区别现在他们的个子都比我高，<笑><笑>真的是这样。我也是给他们看照片，因为我我以为一些这个九十年代的照片，我那时候的学生都是好好，但他们的个子不高啊，也是好瘦了，因为那时候这个生活水平不是跟现在一样的。现在我的学生都比我高啊，我我是经常开玩笑说这样的，但是是真的，因为那时候九十年代大多数的我的学生是农村来的。可能百分之九十以上，我觉得是这样。但是现在我的学生大多数，我觉得是中等阶级啊，只有几个是农村来的，所以这个区别是特别特别大。因为这个国家的发展是并不一样的。Then would you say you are close with your students? What kind of relation is that? Maybe I'll use English. The um, so so you're saying with my students now? 对 With the students now, what are my relations like with、mm-hmm. them? It's very similar in that I feel it's very easy to be close to the students. We've had a lot of contact. It's been very satisfying. I wasn't sure what it would be like because I had such, you know, the 1990s was a very special time. I think when we look back on that period, it's a very unusual moment. When China was just starting to develop, people were just starting to have real contact with outsiders, and it was the first time that really you could live in a place like Fuling. You know, ten、mm. years before that wouldn't have been possible.、Um, so you know, I was very aware that that was an unusual moment, and that this might not be as satisfying in some ways. But it actually has been great. I mean, I've been very happy with it, and yeah, you know, that's why I'm teaching again for another year. I, I originally was only going to teach one year. And we extended to teach another year, so so I've had a very good experience. I mean, the other thing that's interesting, of course, in the '90s, I was very happy with my students. They were very diligent. They were working very hard, and you know, it wasn't surprising in some ways. I mean, these were kids from the countryside. Most of their parents were not educated. In many cases, the parents were illiterate,、um, and so it was a very unusual opportunity to go to university for these people. And so. They knew what it was like to not have a lot of money, and they were motivated by this desire to escape the countryside and to escape poverty.、Um, and so they worked very hard.、Um, and I wasn't sure what it would be like now. The other thing is, those kids were all from big families—four kids, three kids, five kids. This was traditional Chinese nongsun.、Um, and now my kids are almost all single children, only child. And so, what's that like? What change does that make in these young people? I wasn't sure. You know, maybe they're all spoiled. You know.、Mm-hmm. But I found that to be not true at all. And one thing that I find really interesting is they're incredibly diligent. They may be harder working than the students I remember from the 1990s. Yeah, really. I mean, of course, Chuanda is you know Jiubao. It's a good university, but still, you know, in the 1990s, not that many people went to even to Zhuangke School. So even in those days, it was pretty special to go to Fuling. 
but I think it's also the Chinese society is a little unusual now because there was this transition from poverty to relative affluence happened very quickly, but the family sizes got smaller. And so what it means is that in some ways the competition is really intense. So the society, in my opinion, is more competitive than then actually. And you have all of these single children and families have been focusing their resources on these kids' education. So it's a highly, it's, it's weird because I feel like the society has not lost its edge in some ways. You know, people still work incredibly hard. My wife and I always comment about this. Like it's, you know, you come from America and you immediately notice that when you hear like how dedicated, and I'm not just talking about my students. I mean, everybody ranging from the people in our, you know, in our building who, you know, who take out the garbage to the people who drive cabs or whatever. I mean, it, it's still, you know, people work very hard because society is so competitive. And I, I can see that with my students. I think that will probably change as time goes on. That's my impression of this moment. How about your students in Fuling now? What are they doing now? 嗯，大多数还在四川或者重庆，但是也有一部分是在外面，比方说我是刚在浙江，我也是跟一些以前的学生跟他们见面。So most of them are teachers, you know, and that was Fuling was a, you know, was a shifan, you know, like a zhuangkaixiao, and and they were training people to be teachers, and most of them have stayed as teachers, but there are a few who do other things. I'm in touch with many of them, about a hundred. Of my former students, I'm in contact with in one way or another, and so, you know, I try to see them as much as I can. There's quite a few in Fuling. There's a couple in around Chengdu, but mostly they're in all over Sichuan. In this coming year, I want to visit them more. This last year, I didn't end up seeing as many because of the virus and travel restrictions. Yeah. Your students back in the 90s, I mean, the Fuling Normal College students, how's their social class now? Has it changed up? Or down, or remain the same. Well, I guess probably the count be going down, right? They were already peasant anyway. The count really going lower than that in China. They've become city people. Many of them are like in the Xiancheng. Some of them are in the bigger cities, but often it's like a Xiancheng or like place like Fuling or something like that.、Um, not so much in. There's some in Chengdu, some in Chongqing, but mostly in smaller cities.、Um, their lives are very different from what they were before, and see, and now they have students. Their children are now basically taking the gaokao and in college. So from when I, you know, I came to teach in 1996, and of course I came last year in in、uh, 2019. So that's 23 years. It's almost a generation, basically. And so you know, that's also part of why this is an interesting experience because it's like I'm teaching the children of my students. And actually, one of my former students has a son at Chuanda. What I'm really interested in is that your current students are they as curious as your students in Fuling about the America, about the whole world? Yeah, yeah. Well, not as not in the same way. I mean, these a lot of these kids have been overseas. Not for long periods of time, and these are all Gaokao students, you know. So I'm at the Pittsburgh Institute,、um, but these are kids who've been in the Chinese schools. Most of them have been in Gongli Shuishao. You know, it's not the kids who've been studying overseas before, but many of them have traveled overseas. So of course, I mean, their view of America 
and of the outside world is totally different. You know, 1990s, people had no idea, right? And there was no internet. And so you had a lot of very strange ideas and you were always trying to guide people a little bit. And sometimes it was frustrating because there were so many misconceptions. Um, that It's not like that anymore. But I mean, I think they're, so they're much more sophisticated. They're still very interested. Many of my students are preparing to go overseas in some form to study. So their interest is not abstract. You know, in the 1990s, I did not have a single student who imagined going overseas, ever. You know, some of them have gone for travel and for work and so on. Um, but now a large number of my students are planning at some point, or they were planning to study in the United States. I mean, of course, that has gotten more complicated. This has been part of why it's been so interesting to teach at this time is that we have this very strange environment um, with all these events, with the virus, and then with the U.S.-China relations. And so this is all part of our discussions. I, I'm glad to be here at this time, actually, because I think it is really helpful to have human contact and to have, you know, these kind of conversations. And, and so I, I feel like it's valuable. I've read your writing course outline on the Internet and found that you asked your students to reflect on which class they are from and let them learn how to write nonfiction. I think it's a very interesting start point because very few Chinese young people have ever thought much about it, even though it is very significant. One of the reasons was that we were reading George Orwell, actually. And so, you know, because he's a great person, I think, for that was for my nonfiction class. He's a great writer to read because, I mean, he's, you know, he's a brilliant writer. Uh, he was, touches on a lot of important ideas. Um, and also his language is very clear. It's a good writer for Chinese students to read in English. So, And class was very important to him. And in talking about his, I mean, I used him partly, and we talked about class partly because he's a little bit like Lu Xun in that his family was from a higher class that had dropped. That's an experience that very few Chinese have had that experience now. They had it in the past, right? You know, when the country went through periods of decline, you would have somebody like Lu Xun, who had had this memory of his family being worth more, and then they're, they're dropping. And so very few Chinese have had that experience. It gives you a, a special perspective. And that's partly why Lu Xun and, and George Orwell are very sharp political observers. And so part of the reason I talked about that in the class was to give my students that introduction, because it's, it is an unusual perspective in China. But it's also, I mean, this is very new in China. The idea of a, mid, of a middle class is very new, and people don't really know how to define it. You know, when I ask my students that question in that class, like, what social class are you? I think probably... It was maybe half of them or so said that they're middle class. When I asked my former students, my students from Fuling, who I'm in touch with a lot of them, I did a survey with them. Um, the majority did not say middle class. Most of them said, or they said, they had all these different terms. But really, all of them own apartments and cars. They have teaching jobs. They're college educated. In America, we would consider them to be middle class. But the, the ideas are different. I mean, in America, if you ask people, 70% of Americans say they're middle class. You know, so that's not really true, but that's their idea. You know, so that's also interesting to think about. And I talked about that with my classes. You know, where does this conception come from? And this idea of what part of society do you belong to? For example, my former students, why is it that they don't say they're middle class? It's probably because they grew up, you know, in the countryside. And they still have this feeling of not having that much, even if they're doing quite well. I mean, one of the students, I mean, he makes like 80,000 U.S. dollars a year. You know, he makes a lot of money. He's got a car. He's got like four apartments. But he still says that he's 
Chong. <laughs> you know, he doesn't say that he's Chong Dong Jie So it's it's interesting. That's the perception because he was poor when he was young, and he still has that feeling. So there isn't the same sort of security sometimes. So how do they define their class identities when you raised that question? Well, that time I was just, I, it was a series of questions.、Um, for my current students, I think the majority said they were middle class. You know, very few would say they're upper class. In America, that's also true. People usually don't like to define themselves like that. But、uh, I think that probably more, some of them would say that they were lower class when, in fact, by most definitions, they are middle class. But you know, nobody knows how to define this, and some of what's important is how you define yourself. That's an interesting issue. You know, I, I feel like also people in China are much more aware of what's gone on in their societies, and so they're more analytical sometimes. Young people are, at least. 什么方面呢 For example, we talk about the Gao Kao a lot. That's also a big difference. When I was teaching twenty plus years ago in Fuling, my students very rarely talked about the Gao Kao, their experience. It was behind them, and they were done with it. It was not as intense. People did. They didn't do all the bushi, right? I mean, my my children are in Sanian, they are in the Gao Gao. I also teach them about 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 the Gao Gao. And we have debates, and in every class we've had a debate: should the system be changed or should it stay the same? And that's really often kind of an even split. And that's also something that's different. It was harder in the 1990s to have a debate in class because most students would have the same opinion. I notice now that the opinions are more varied. So there's still certain subjects that if you ask it, everybody will have the same idea. But generally speaking, you're more likely to have different opinions now. So, so I, I like that. I mean, I think that's a good development. Could you tell us a little bit more about the students that appeared in your River Tongue book? How's their life now? I don't think it changed anybody's. I mean, I think it changed their perspective because they all read and they they've read the book and they know what I, you know, what my feelings were like and what that and they remember that experience quite clearly, partly because of the book, I think.、Um, but it didn't change their lives in terms of. The impact of the book itself,、um, but I think that having, you know, Adam Meyer was the other foreign teacher, and and me, and then there were two others who followed. I think that contact is really important. It, it ch- certainly changed my life. I mean, my life was changed more than any of my students <laughs> by that by that experience. But I think their lives were changed in little ways because you're changing their perspective, and you know, maybe you're encouraging them to think in different ways.、Um, you know, I think that sort of exchange is so important, and it did. You know, de- definitely had a big impact on my life. Adam Meyer, the person who was teaching there with me,、um, you know, he works with programs like the Fulbright and exchange programs in the United States. That's partly because of that experience, because he has faith in these exchanges, you know, and he believes that this is important for the United States for understanding the world is to have Americans going overseas and having people from other countries coming to America. I remember your comment on academic critics in Rivertown. You said that though these Marxist literary critics with upper class backgrounds and good salaries had a tenure, but they didn't have the same bias as Grace, one of your students, inside. 
as you always felt that people who spoke feelingly of revolution and class struggle were not better qualified to have tenure than Grace, a daughter of peasants. Your point is quite stunning to me. So you have considered this question since your teaching life in Fuling, right? Yeah, they, so they and they were cleaning the classrooms. The students were doing a lot of laudong, and of course that's different now.、Um, the politics is more sophisticated among the young people now. You still get a lot of Marxist theory because they all study it,、um, but I think it's farther removed in some ways. I mean, those students in the 1990s, yeah, they were the proletariat. This, they were the Wu Chan Jiji, you know, and and so they they really saw themselves in that light, and. You know, you had to take those ideas seriously because they lived it. It is sometimes in the, in American academia or British academia, it feels a little bit like a game. You know, like these different theories are just ideas, and the people are actually very privileged. And you know, I made a joke in that section about you know the Marxist who has tenure. You know, which is sort of a you know a funny idea.、Um, but yeah, that's all different now. I feel like you know because most of the people I teach. You know, or from reasonably comfortable surroundings. They're they're not from the same kind of background. I know one of your students, right?、Uh, he translated your book. How's his his life now? Oh, this Fan Bush is a student. He is my student. Li Xuexun. He was the exact same age as me, so we were born the same year, and、oh. so we were both young teachers at Fuling. He had the best English in the university, probably in the whole city. You know, Li Xuexun. He was from a very poor background. He was from、uh, Wulong. In、uh, Chongqing, those days it was Sichuan. Nobody else in his family went to university, so he was one of these guys. But he was very had a real talent for language, and he was one of the few people who could carry on a conversation with us in English. And so at the beginning, he clearly wanted to be friends with us, and he invited us over to his home for dinner, and we bought jalza and everything, and it was great. And then he never invited us again. Oh, because the school. We learned later. Oh, and of course he couldn't tell us, and he was buhalisa about it. But they, people told him, no, you can't do that. So we never became good friends with him. We always liked him, and we would, when we talked to him, we would say hi. But we weren't close. And it wasn't until later, actually, in the years later, when I would come back and fooling was had become more relaxed, and he became a leader in the department. Then we developed a real friendship. And then when my book was going to be translated, he told me he was interested. I didn't know if he was any good as a translator. But I told the Shanghai translation, you know, he's interested. If you want to look, and so they gave him a chance, and they said, "No, this is really good," and they commissioned him to do it.、And、it turned out he's a very good translator. So we've become very close over the years. So when I was just in Fuling last month, I saw him. You know, like I, I always do when I'm on campus, when I'm in town, and and we also developed an interesting relationship because he translated my book. So I see him a lot. There are other students, like、uh, Willie. I to mention you, like he's in Zhejiang, and I, I just saw him last week. I saw three of my former students when I was in Wenzhou last week, because、um, some of the students would go there.、Um, like Mo Money, he's a teacher in Chongqing. He's doing well, so I'm in touch with a lot of them. And Emily, a student I wrote about in Jiaguwen and also in in Jiangcheng,、uh, she isn't back in Fuling now. She's no longer in Shenzhen,、um, and I see her a lot. I saw her last month too. So we're quite close. We write a lot, and and of course, bonds. You know, those relationships over twenty years have been,、uh, you know, just really important for a lot of reasons. You know, and and、uh, it keeps me connected to that experience. It's very nice to have friends like at that level. You know, people that you really trust and that you've known for such a long time. When you first came to China, you were in your twenties, right? You probably don't know what you were looking for at the time. 
Now you're at your 50s. <laughs> Do you know what you're looking for this time in China? Yeah, it's different now. I mean, obviously, you know, I have a much clearer idea of what I do. I'm a writer, so I will write about my experiences one way or another. I have a family, so my wife also wants to write here. That's one reason we came back.、Um, and we have two daughters, and we wanted our daughters to learn Chinese.、Um, and that was one of our reasons for coming here.、Um, we wanted our kids to be in a Chinese school and to have the experience of the language, but we also. I also wanted them actually to have the experience of being outsiders. I think it's a valuable thing for children. It, it is a type of challenge, you know, and it demands a lot of them, but I think it's good for their development. And... Well, talking about the outsider perspective,、uh, you were a total stranger, an outsider to China, writing The River Town back in 1996, right? That is a very charming perspective to Chinese readers. None of us realized that our lives were so strange to foreigners. But I, I'm just wondering.、Um, after all these years living in China, do you still have that kind of an outsider perspective? Will you get desensitized about China over time? I'll always be an outsider. I'm an outsider in America too, to some degree. You know, I mean, this. I think when you've lived like this for a long time, you are always a little bit out of place. I mean, so Leslie and I, when we're in America, that's our home country. And that's the place we're most comfortable. But there's still things there that seem a little weird to us because we've been overseas for more than 20 years, you know. And so, and we never fit exactly into any community. Just like here, we're, we're very comfortable in Chengdu,、um, you know. But still, we're outsiders. And I like that perspective. I'm glad that I, you know, but I live my life in a very deliberate way to cultivate that, to kind of protect it, you know. And that's why I've made the decision to move basically every five years or less. You know, we were in Egypt for five years. Before that, we were in America for let's see, three years. Yeah, four years, I guess it was, in 2007 to 2011. And then we were back in after Egypt. We were in America for three years, and then here. You know, we hope to be here for about five years. So I like that pattern because it keeps me from beginning too comfortable. That's part of the goal. I think you notice less once you become too comfortable. So it. It keeps you sharp in your observation. Of course, it's hard, you know. Even at this age, and even in a place like, you know, Chengdu is not difficult the way that Fuling was difficult. You know, by it's totally different, right? I mean, that the you can get anything you want pretty much. You can have it delivered to your door, right?、Um, and so, in that sense, it's but it's still it's hard to move your whole family to a new place. It would be easier for us to live in Colorado,、um, but we think it's good for us as writers. I think it's 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 good for your perception. Will you write about your two daughters' experience in China public school during the pandemic? That will be interesting to know. Yeah, no, that's a good question. In, in some ways, it doesn't actually.、Um, in some ways, because I mean, I feel I've still been writing quite a bit actually, and I've been. It hasn't, you know, it slows you down a little bit, but not that much. But、uh, the basic job is still the same. And I feel the same responsibility to the people I write about. You know, I can't just say, "Well, now I have children, so I don't have to listen to your story as closely, or I don't have to. I'm not going to spend as much time reporting this." Right? It's still, I, you know, I feel like I have that responsibility. It does change your perspective in that I've written some about family life in, in Egypt and a little bit in China. You know, what it's like to be here with with a family, and I think that's nice to be able to do. But yeah, fundamentally, I actually don't think it is a huge change. You know, and it's not like I was never that person who said, you know, now that I have children, they are the most important thing in the world. 
I kind of don't believe that. Like <laughs> they're important to me. Yeah. So obviously, and I spend as much time as I can with them. But at the same time, like I'm writing about people in in Egypt or in China or in the United States, and I I respect the importance of those lives, and I I want to be dedicated to that job. We can find such narrations and reflections in Driving Country and the chapter about the domestic life of Wei's family in Sancha Village and their little son's school life. You said that most of the things they've learned in school is incredibly chaotic, but children acquire this knowledge in mind without understanding. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is to some degree this is always true with children's education. It's a little bit chaotic, and you, if you read any child's textbook, you wonder like, well, how are they going to make any sense out of this? Because it takes time, obviously. But I mean, I'm more in touch with this now because I'm watching my daughter's education, you know, and I see what their material is. I think the materials are, are much better now than they were. You know, 15 years ago. But there is still, you know, if I'm looking at the Chinese system, I think there is an overload of homework on those children. They're spending too much. They don't have enough time to just interact naturally, you know. And so that's a problem. I feel like、uh, everybody's doing so much bushi that they don't just play. And that's a good part of their development is to play. And I think it also there's also a little bit of a lack of emphasis on creativity. You know, in in the Chinese structure, but there's a lot of really positive things. I mean, I think there there is a lot of value actually in having some rigor, like they have in the mathematics here. You know, you do learn something useful. So my ideal education system would be somewhere between China and the United States. Like I think the United States is too relaxed; it's too easy. But I think China is maybe too narrowly focused on certain things and too hard, maybe. And so, for children, I think a middle path would be best. So we're doing that by having our kids in Chinese schools for some time, and then American schools for some time. That's our plan. How's your daughter's school? I mean, it was very hard because they arrived speaking no Chinese, and we put them in a Chinese school. <laughs> so, but you know, and the people thought it was crazy, like that some of people in the school and some Chinese. But you have to. This is where being an American helps because in America we do this all the time. People come from other countries, and what do you do with them? You put them in the classroom. And they'll figure it out, you know. Like when I was after when I was writing Rivertown, I was at my parents' home writing that book, and I would go every week just to kind of stop being crazy and thinking about my book. And I would go to the local school and tutor because they had two Chinese boys who came. One was I think Wuhan, the other one was Beijing, and they came with no English at all. This was 1998, you know, so they didn't have any English, and they put them in this school in Columbia, Missouri. Nobody in the whole school speaks a word of Chinese. And I would go there like twice a week and kind of talk to them, mostly just to help with their Xinli, you know, and their psychology. But it was amazing. After half a year, they were speaking English quite well. So we had confidence actually that if our daughters were in the class, they would learn the language. And we did give them some tutoring, you know, to help them.、Um, but that, of course, we knew it would be a difficult process, and so it was hard. And we had to give them a lot of support. And so my wife and I spent a lot of time doing math in Chinese in the fall. Because we had to help them understand their math problems, so we would read these third grade and and Sanyanji, Jaga Shushu, Tobinan, whatever, Tobinan, and the questions are crazy. I mean, it's really hard stuff. Have you sent them to tutor classes? No, no, no. They were, I think, just the best is we need to help them. So, so my wife, especially Leslie, did even more than me because I was teaching, you know.、Um, but we both spent a lot of time doing math in Chinese. But it's really useful, actually. I mean, so we got to look at this system. It's, it's really well done. You know, the math I have a lot of respect for. I think I don't think they need to do as much of it as they do. It's excessive, 
but it's very well structured. And I think it's very useful for a child's development. I have a lot of respect for it. But so this was, yeah, so my daughters, you know, my, you have to understand, they were in school in Colorado, in a small, like our town in Colorado has a thousand people. It's, it's known to, you know, there's, our county does not have a Starbucks or a McDonald's. I mean, this is really rural America. And their school in January, every year, every Friday, the school is a public school. The school takes every child and they go to the mountains to ski all day. No school, because they think it's useful for the kids to get outside and to learn how to ski and everything. They're, they did the same UN. They took all the exams with all the other students, you know. And so, and I think they're proud. You know, it makes them proud that they've had this experience. It gives them confidence. And that's one of the reasons we, we knew it would be hard, but we also thought it would be good for them. How about literature? Do you like the Chinese class Yuan Ke? I think it's it's quite good. It's... The writing is a little rigid, you know, the way that writing is taught in China. I think it's, there's certain formula, like the, the cheng yu, you know, sometimes is a little much, in my opinion, like you memorize these set phrases and you use them as a writer. And it's often not so much on expressing yourself. And that is one thing that I feel like is better in the American system. You know, they have, they encourage the children more to write in a more personal way and to express themselves. And I think that's probably better. But there's a long tradition that leads to this, right? Because Chinese writing is not the same as English writing. You do use Chengyu in Chinese writing. Right. In English writing, you don't do that. You don't, my students would always do that in, in fooling, and sometimes they do it now. And I have to tell them, don't use cliches, right? Because they think the cliche is like a Chengyu. And it's like, no, that doesn't make your writing look good. It makes it look bad in English. There are different traditions, right? So there's a reason why... In Chinese, you learn these chengyu, you know, so you, you know, so you could say, you know, kaimen, jianshan, you know, the, the phrase is, that's useful. But I think sometimes it does become a little formulaic. Um, but it's great. I mean, I, one thing that's great in the, in the Chinese, when in the UN is that they learn so many poems, right? I mean, my daughters can already recite so many Levi poems and, and other writers, right? In America, we don't do that much anymore. You know, that's people don't like memorizing. And I think that's a little bit of a mistake. I, I think it's actually there was some value in memorizing poetry. And when my daughters were very small, I would have them memorize English poems, you know, um, because I think it's good for you. I, I think it's actually good for a child. It also connects you to that tradition. Will you write about your two daughters experience in China public school during the pandemic? That will be interesting to know. I don't know. I'm not even thinking about Shinshu right now because <laughs> I'm just trying to get to tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's like it's been a very intense first year, you know, with everything that and we didn't expect all of these events to happen. And so I'm not even going to worry about that. Um, but it's been a really great experience. And I mean, we've we've been very grateful. And, the you know, the school is great. And I think my daughters also appreciate it. And of course, this happens to be a time when in America, you really many kids are not in school because of the I Ching, you know. And so my daughters will be in school next month, and most American students will not. Then have you read their textbooks? Yeah, I'm studying their book as well, but I'm studying it very slowly because I have so many other things. So I'm, because I'm reviewing, so I'm doing the Hansa with them and everything, yeah. So, but, it, but I'm very, very slow. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's fun to watch them engage with the language and with the material. But I mean, they will have a level of fluency that uh, even, you know, my wife, Leslie, her Chinese, of course, is better than mine. She studied as a child. She spoke it at home, but she also did like Bushi Ke in the weekends, like a lot of Meiji Huaren. But she doesn't read Chinese the way she reads English. Um, but it's possible that our daughters will be able to do that, that they will be very comfortable reading in Chinese. That's what we would like for them to be able to do both languages 
um, at that level. It's all, the good thing is it's all connected, right? I mean, I just wrote a story uh, for the New Yorker, and I wrote a little bit about my daughter's experience. You know, so it's not there's no separate, there's no real clear line. So I never feel like oh, now I'm working on the book and I can't deal with you or, or working on my writing. I mean, it's it's part of the same the same environment basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you become less efficient when you have kids. I mean, Leslie's writing her Egypt book. Now she's oh. finishing her book about Egypt, and that's partly because it's been very hard for her to manage all the things here. She has spent more time managing the, my daughter's education than me because I was teaching at Twanda, you know. So I I had a lot of commitment there. Yeah. Well, in my opinion, China's nonfiction writing is at very early stage. I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm just saying in general terms. So for your fans or those who want to dedicate their career to nonfiction writing. I'm sure there are a lot of people in China already、uh, try to do that. So, what's your suggestion for them?、Uh, what should they practice? Where should they focus at? Yeah, I'm. I don't actually have a great background in what the status is for the field in China. I mean, China is amazing because I think there is such good material for Face You Go. But where are the outlets? That's also very important. Like, how do you support yourself? You know. So, part of what it takes to build a tradition. Is to have a market for it, you know, and that's one. I mean, America has probably the strongest literary nonfiction tradition in the world, in my opinion. England is a very literary culture in a lot of ways, and they have a lot of great novels. But the nonfiction is not as developed as the United States. What's the reason? It's mostly just because of the market. America is a big country; it's big enough to support the New Yorker, and the New Yorker supports people like me. If I had been German, I wouldn't be writing this way, probably. So, is it related to the prosperity of mass culture in USA? The culture is there's enough people. Even you know the New Yorker. I mean, you have one million subscribers. Okay, out of a country of America's size, it's not that many at 350 million or whatever, but it's enough. You know, so it's just because the scale is big enough. I don't. I think actually America is not a very literary culture, and Americans are becoming less literary all the time. But the the size of the place is big enough. To support an institution like the New Yorker or the Atlantic or these other publications that can help people like me make a living. Well, in theory,、um, China is supposed to be the biggest market for consuming nonfiction writing stuff.、Uh, but the fact is,、um, hardly anyone around me. I'm already in an intellectual circle that hardly anyone surrounds me read that sort of thing. What is reason behind that? Do you think? Yeah, no, it's. It, I mean, I think so. That's very promising, and and also China is quite literate. You know, people here do read, and you know the culture. You know, the, because the school system is quite solid in teaching people how to be literate, that's also promising. But you've got other issues. You've got restrictions. You have a marketplace that's not really that mature. So that makes it hard for people to develop. Because yeah, I mean, you are a product of your environment. So it's not like I, I was able to write these books because I was, you know, I was educated in this way. And I was in China at the right time, and I also had marketplace for them, so I was able to be supported. But if I didn't have those things, I wouldn't be a writer now. Be a banker, or a- I'd be doing something else. I don't know what I'd be doing. I'd probably be a teacher. That's probably. I was never going to be a banker. I didn't have any, and I wasn't really very interested in money. As a writer, one thing I learned is I had to learn to be somewhat of a businessman. Like, because if I'm going to support myself as an independent writer, I have to be smart with money. And smart with investments too. So I learned actually how to do investing and things like that, and how to manage my money,、um, because otherwise I couldn't make it as a writer. 
So I actually, it taught me a lot about economics. But I no, economics are so important when you're in a place like China or Egypt. And the change in factories and villages is all about growing economy and wealth, right? Yeah. No. So you know, you've, I, you have to respect economics, right, and respect economic forces. But that's part of what I'm saying. I also realize that I am a product of those economic forces because America has a marketplace that supports the New Yorker. Then it has allowed me to have this career. If I were in another culture, that might not have happened. Probably wouldn't have happened. Another interesting opinion in driving country is that you believe that the rural people moving to cities and working in factories were China's version of industrial revolution, and they had a gift of self-invention that can rival the stories of Dickens. So, do you think China is undergoing its own version of industrial revolution? Yeah, I mean a revolution in the sense of their living patterns, not a political revolution, but a revolution in their ideas, where they live, the type of work they do.、Um, you know, it also trained. I mean, people go from the countryside to the factory, and they learn to clock. Right? You know, it's like you start to live by time. That's a big adjustment for somebody from rural China in the year 2000 or whatever. Yeah. No. So it was a fascinating moment to watch that, and you really did feel like it was like the Industrial Revolution. In England and in America, but in much more condensed form, you know, because other countries had already been through this, so you already have certain patterns that you can very easily bring in. And of course, the factories came in, and the the demand came in from the outside world. So it was so fast. I mean, but that was why it was so fascinating to observe. So you could see people changing, you know, like、uh, you could see people becoming urban citizens, you know, who were from the countryside, like. My former student Willie, I just visited him last week in Zhejiang. I mean, he was when I taught him, he was a kid from the countryside. He was from Deng Xiaoping's hometown, you know, and Guan, yeah, from from near that area. And you know, now he's like a very urban teacher in Zhejiang. He's been there for a long time. He's got, you know, he drives a Volkswagen. He's very quite sophisticated. He gets onto foreign websites. You know, he's like so. You know, his his life has totally changed. But it's interesting because his older brothers are not like that. He has two older brothers. Trapped in Chongqing. No, yeah, they're they're not trapped, but they have you know modest jobs. You know,、um, they were not college educated,、oh. and it's partly because he was the youngest. You know, the the system was getting a little better, and people had opportunity, and so he was able to go to university. So his path is totally different. It's fascinating. You know, you see a lot of examples of that with those kids. You know, sometimes only one kid in the family had the opportunity to be educated. You talk about the industrial revolution of the West. Many famous writer. Became famous during that period. That's most probably because the revolution created a new social structure, and then it brings a new lifestyle and the new feelings, right? So the writers need to express those feelings for the people. Well, that's my theory. I don't know whether it's right or not.、Um, do you think the Chinese society, which is also undergoing a great industrial revolution, is also at the tipping point where people need to express the new feelings? And then we will have a lot of new famous writers. Yeah, I mean, there's different reasons for it. I mean, there's there's obviously there are limitations on what you can write. I think also education here. I mean, the kind of class that I took as a as a student, where I studied with John McPhee, that kind of class is not very common.、Mm. And they, actually, Chinese journalism students tend to do mostly theory. They don't do a lot of practical reporting, and and actually, when they do reporting, they do it in groups. Oh, so with with、yeah. my it's always group projects, partly because the classes are big, 
So that means like for my students, I say, no, you have to do your own project. If you're going to be a reporter, you should be on your own. But that means I have to read 30 papers. You know? <laughs> so that's why I'm so busy. But I think it's important. You know, that's so, so, you know, it helps a lot to have some educational base. I think there's a little bit of more of a separation with Chinese intellectuals in society, traditionally. You know, there is a tradition of intellectuals in China, just your friends of being kind of separate from Lao Baixing and from the average stuff and maybe writing in a more theoretical way. Like the the, es- the tradition of Fei Xu Go in China was more essays, right? The nonfiction writing was not so much reporting. And so that's a new thing. And so I think there has to be some kind of transition, right? I mean, I was always struck by a lot of Chinese novels are kind of abstract or using symbols or allegories. Uh, like the wolf totem, right? I mean, that's like a... Yeah, so it's like a long allegory. I mean, it's very beautiful and fascinating, right, to have this idea of what these wolves represent and what it says about society. But there's also another side, which is you just get in there and know the, just spend the time in the village or in the factory and, and write about that. And I think that tradition has not been as strong in China. And so, you know, that kind of separation, that divide is something you need. And in America, we have the same issue. You know, like there is, if you're an educated person, it becomes harder to go and talk to Lao Baixing. In America, it's the same thing, right? But there is, there's quite a tradition of doing it, you know. And, and so I, somebody like me, it seems pretty natural. Like when I'm in America, I do the same thing. I, you know, I did a story about the people that supported Trump, and these were just kind of Lao Baixing. They're not at all like me. They don't have the same education, but I feel comfortable talking to them because I was educated in that tradition. My father did that. My father's job was talking to people who were different from him. Isn't your father a historian? And my father's a very unusual person in that I think he really, he likes t- talking to people who are different from him, and he likes hearing their ideas. And he he. he just finds it interesting and he's not very judgmental necessarily even if somebody's ideas are really different he likes to hear why and I think that was also that had a big influence on me because you know I don't know I mean like when I was talking to uh, interviewing Trump supporters some of my friends in America say how can you talk to those people like the stuff they believe how can you talk to them I was like well have you talked to somebody in Egypt Like, they have a lot of ideas that I think are crazy, too. And some people in China believe things that I don't really believe. And, of course, there's things that I believe that they don't think is, are crazy. Like, to me, it's just natural that people have different ideas. And I'm just kind of curious about it, you know. And so I accept that they're not all going to agree with. And there's some things that I believe that people here might think are offensive. There's some things I believe that people in Egypt might think are offensive, you know. So to me, that's just the way the world is. And I'm interested in hearing what they think and why they think it. And I can analyze that. But it's not, it's not going to offend me. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Your opinions on Chinese writers also strikes me a lot. You mentioned that you find something symbolic and abstract, which is hard to figure out directly when reading Wolf Totem. Can you elaborate that? And that's not a criticism of... That, but I'm just saying that's to me, has always been a strength in Chinese writing, that there is a strong tradition of finding symbolic ways to explain things. And it's, it, it can even, there's even a political element to that, because sometimes that's a safer way to talk about things, right? So, so it's an interesting side of it. But if you're doing... So, so that's a novel, of course, and the novelists do their own thing. 
but to do nonfiction writing is sometimes more direct and that kind of reporting, I think that's a different kind of project than most Chinese writers have been involved in. So that's, it requires a different mentality and a different approach. I mean, I have one thing that I've been interested as a teacher, my students, I've feel like are very good reporters. Like I've noticed that they're actually quite good at observing and going out and talking to people, partly I think because, maybe because of the golf call, like they, they're willing to work hard and they don't get bored. You know, as I say, a lot of reporting is boring and they can do that because they were bored all through, all through Galdrum, right? You know, they have to work, they have to stay focused. They can do that. They make good reporters. I was very impressed with them and they're very observant. And this is not just the Xinwen Shi students. I mean, this is even the engineering students that I teach. I mean, I have they go out and do projects, and they're really good. I, I was very impressed with them. So I, I think there's actually, you know, a lot of ability there. Um, it just has to be directed, and they need to have an outlet for it. And you just mentioned the strict separation between intellectuals and the common people, both in China and the U.S. And reporters should spend time in the village and the factories to write about the ordinary ones. I'm wondering if there is anything to do with George Orwell, because this way of writing is very like George Orwell. Yeah, I know he certainly did that. He was very committed. I mean, and his moment, that moment in the early 20th century, was a time when people had a new interest in being documentarian. Some of it was photography, you know, because this was a new art and you could capture things the way they were. And so people were doing that, like in the, you know, the Spanish Civil War. Some of those early war photographs are from that war. And that also influenced writing. So people like Orwell said, okay, our job is to record this. You know, we want to write about it accurately. So yeah, certainly he had a big, you know, his generation was when people started to take a real interest in this. Um, and that tradition has, you know, has been built on and built on. And, and people like me or Leslie are working in that same tradition now, you know, trying to do what we can to document them. Well, last year, there was a very famous documentary called The American Factory. I created quite a buzz in both China and the U.S. Uh, along with other books like Jane's Well and The Hillbilly Allergy, I think it painted a really bleak picture of the declining American middle class. As an American and a, and a writer who writes extensively about the common Chinese folks, 老百姓, or 老百姓's effort to improve their lives and move up the social ladder, do you see um, there is a connection? Do you see there is a linkage between these two societies' problems or, um, you know, realities? I mean, you know, it, it certainly plays a role. I mean, there are a lot of jobs that left, you know, and... and but, you know, I tend to be, I guess I'm a globalist or an internationalist in that I feel like you have to kind of read, part of what you have to do is redefine what Americans can be good at, and you have to prepare them for a new role. And I feel like the American educational system has not necessarily made that adjustment. I think that we, we have not invested enough in our education because we should be preparing our people. Because in the end, like, a lot of those jobs that left, I don't think Americans should be doing them anymore, really. I mean, your society should go to a different stage where you're doing a different type of thing. And I see the people like in the factory in, in Zhejiang and they're working and they're making, you know, at that point, I don't know how much they were making an hour, four quai an hour or something. I mean, even if you triple that wage, it's not going to make an American happy, right? Mm -hmm. So I think at some level, some of those jobs are going to go away. You cannot protect them endlessly. You can make some adjustments and you can try to make the transition better. But you, part of what you need to be doing is preparing your citizens for a new role. 
in the world economy. And I feel like Americans, they, uh, you know, were a little passive in that regard. But I understand, you know, the feeling. I mean, this this sense of, of frustration and that this country is in decline, I think, is, a you know, it's a very strong psychological problem in America right now. You know, and they look at China and and it bothers them. And that's a natural dynamic. And it's going to be a big part of our interactions in the future. As we all know, the divergence of views are becoming wider and wider on the internet in China. And everyone turns a deaf ear to different voices. And this also happens in America. How do you feel about it? Yeah, that's one reason why I'm not on social media. I'm not on Twitter or Facebook. I, I don't like that stuff. Because when I talk to you in person, if you say something that I don't agree with, I'm going to interact with you in a different way. If I just see your words on the screen, maybe I'm just going to dismiss you or insult you or argue with you in a really sharp way. But if we're talking face-to-face, our interaction is different. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of uh, social media for that reason, and I try to avoid it. Of course, I feel like a dinosaur, you know, because everybody uses it. I don't use it much. Maybe it makes it bad for me as a reporter. I don't really connect with it. But I think there's still a lot of value in just talking to people face to face and thinking about those interactions. In Egypt, I thought it was a problem because in Egypt, you know, 25% of the population was illiterate. But a lot of the journalists would use the social media to do reporting. And those are very elite Egyptians, especially the ones doing it in English. Mm -hmm. So you're getting a very specific elite view. But you needed to be like I talked to the Saeed, you know, was my garbage man. And so somebody like that, he's not going to be on social media. And I felt like to understand the society, it was better to be talking to people. Now, China is different because more people are educated and everybody is on Weijin or whatever, you know. So, But I still think there is a real value. It's necessary to talk to people in person. But I also think for my sanity, I don't like social media. Like, I just, I don't think it's good for people, actually. Well, your identity varies from journalist to writer. Uh, which one do you prefer, journalist or writer? I read many of your articles and books and find that you're not that into current affairs. I don't know how you see yourself on that. Elaborate on this, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it doesn't, I don't know if it matters very much. I mean, both, you can say that I'm a writer, you can say that I'm a nonfiction writer, you can say that I, there's different terms for that. Sometimes they say creative nonfiction, narrative nonfiction, but I am also a, a journalist in the sense that I do reporting. And so I'm not... Because sometimes if you say you're a writer in America, there is a sense of being an essayist, which is different, where you're writing about your life or about... What a journalist does is you also go out and report. And that, that is a big part of what I do. And so, and I respect that tradition, the documentary tradition, the reportage. Um, and I try to do that here, you know, to go out and talk to people and to gather information in that way. You know, all those terms are fine. In Chinese, they're loaded, like a jija is kind of a loaded term. Because it's, you know, people think it's like being a jindia or something, right? <laughs> so, you know, so sometimes you're concerned about those terms. You've just said that reporting people as a journalist is not very human, and it's to consume them, but not to help them, which is, in fact, to exploit the interviewees. When did you realize that could be a problem? I don't know. It's just maybe especially when I was first living in China because I would write things and it was like I was in the the business, you know, it was like I was export import and that I would take people's stories and they would be published in America and people would read about it. It's different now because when I write something, people in China can read it generally. It gets translated quite quickly usually. And so that's healthier in my opinion. I think that's a better situation. I'm more comfortable. With, and that's, you know, I had this 
debate about whether to publish my books in China um, because there were some sex, small sections that had to be removed. Um, and a lot of American journalists are very opposed to that. And I think in general, it's not a good thing. Like, I don't like doing that. It's not something I want to do. But I also had to balance that with, to me, it was a problem that I had written these books about a place like Fooling, but then people in Fooling couldn't read it. You know, I didn't like that. You know, it, I felt like they sort of should be able to read it. And the solution was not perfect because it's, they're not reading 100% of it. But I tried to find ways, like I put the material that was removed, I put it online so if people want to find it. Um, but I, I felt like that was, it's helpful for them to have access to these things. It's quite trendy lately to talk about social class solidification in China. People at my age or younger than me believe that is, it is a sin. When you were teaching in Fuling 25 years ago, well, China was quite a classless society. We don't have any social class at the time. There are all poor people's proletariats, right? And your students, as it turned out, moved up the social ladder, right? Um, get out of the poverty. They have a car, they have a proper job. And you just said the new generation is competing relentlessly. But my own observation is, you know, tend to be different, that um, many people consider the society to be more static. Uh, the future, it's bleak, and they don't work that hard anymore. You know, they don't work as hard as their brothers and uncles. How do you see this? Yeah, see, I asked my students, I asked them this, do you expect your lives to be better than the lives of your parents' generation? And out of like 50, whatever, more than 50, only three didn't say yes. Oh. Only three said no or the same. So most people still expect, I think, that their lives will be better. But at some point, it's not going to happen. Right? We don't know when. But at some point, China will hit that moment. America has hit that moment. And it's part of what's going on with the American psychology, that people realize that they can expect things to be better than they were for their parents. And that's hard on people. You know, and that's one of the reasons why people are kind of struggling in America. So, yeah, I don't think China has hit that point yet. There is definitely, you know, classes are solidifying, but I think there still is some fluidity. But, yeah, eventually it will be a dynamic. In America, this happened... Yeah, it could happen. It could happen faster. <laughs> yeah, I don't know when it will happen. But I mean, as I said, I mean, I still feel like there is a strong work ethic here that protects people to some degree, you know, and you see this in all different kinds of jobs. I'm always kind of amazed at how dedicated people are, you know, to what they're doing. There's a real value in work. I, th I think America's lost some of that. And, you know, it needs to be recalibrated, maybe. Um, but the problem is now they're trying to blame all of their problems on somebody else, you know. At some point, it's helpful to kind of realize, no, we need to change something with ourselves. And we made mistakes. That's a, a useful process. There's a saying by a Greek philosopher, no man ever steps in the same river twice. For he's not the same river, and he's not the same man. Because of your books, Mr. Hassler, we are able to step the same river many times. As a Chinese, I have to thank you for your effort recording China before this great change of our society. It's priceless. Thank you, Mr. Hassler. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, no, thank you. And it, I mean, it's true. It's, it's, it's different. And that's, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm back in the same river at different times, but, it, <laughs> but it, the river is different. It's true. You know, fooling is different. Chengdu is different. And I'm different, too. Hmm. That's all for our show with Mr. He Wei. Thank you very much. In the end, we asked Mr. He Wei to recommend a book. Fiction recently, I was reading um, Elena Ferrante, 
My Brilliant Friend. She's an Italian writer. The book is called My Brilliant Friend. Yeah, it's about, uh, you know, the friendship between two young women, and it's Italy in the 1950s and 60s, and it's, you know, very evocative, and even if it's specific to Italy, I think it's quite general in the sense the intensity of sort of female friendships is captured quite brilliantly in, in, in that book. Thank you.